listening to Thulos, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Thulos offers a scriptural daily bread for God's household and explores servant leadership as an Orthodox Christian. I'm Holly Benton, your host and executive director for the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative. And with me is our co-host, Father Timothy Lowe. He is a retired priest and former rector of the Tontour Ecumenical Institute in Jerusalem. Hello, Father Timothy. Holly, it's nice to see you again. You as well. Well, Father Timothy, the last few episodes have been focused on Israel's search for a king. We've had many examples of leadership failures with King Saul, then David, then Solomon. There were even more failures after King Solomon, so much so that the law of the Lord was buried and entirely forgotten, functionally extinct, so that Israel really is now finally operating like any other nation, a law unto themselves with a human king as its head. But the one king who stands out long after Solomon declared as righteous in the eyes of the Lord. It was King Josiah. It's interesting that modern Christians know very little about King Josiah. He doesn't get a lot of airtime in the biblical story like Saul and David and Solomon. I'm wondering why you think that might be, Father Timothy. Well, of course, we're going to speculate a little bit here, but I like your question. We are at the end, end of the long story. When I say that, we're talking Genesis 1, the human story. Now, as it closes in, focuses on one people, one reality, their little ticky-tacky little world. The ironic effect is that of Josiah, and we'll read soon, is the singularly good king. And of course, he's eliminated as quickly as he appears. And that in itself is the witness of the end. Now, what is interesting about his name, and it really sets the tone. There's a little bit of disagreement among scholars because of the complex root, but it means the despair of God. Hmm. Once again, God is despairing over his creation. We had that, of course, in Genesis and the story of Noah. And, and you have it, of course, it repeats itself, the theme of the despair of God saying, I can't stand these people anymore. And he says, Moses, come on, I'll make a new people out of you and we'll just start all over again. So this constant resetting, restarting, and this is why people have to read the whole text. Okay? You can skim over Genesis and Exodus, but to see we're coming to the end of an epic, Samuel and Kings, and that is the narrative that started in Genesis 1. So people have to keep that in context, even if they don't know that story, but they have to at least put it, that in a larger context, like you would the ending of any great drama, The Lord of the Rings, okay, <laughs> if you will, would be the most common and most fantastic. And So let us look at Josiah and what is happening here, and let us be shocked and stunned. The end of Lent is coming up, so okay, we need to be shocked and stunned again. <laughs> mm-hmm. You suggested reading from 2 Kings chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jadida, the daughter of Adiah of Boscoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And then jumping a few verses later, and Hilkiah, the priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king 
and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Aikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So, Father Timothy I don't know if you realize we have a Thulos podcast episode in our archives with Father Dustin Lyon that addresses the few verses that were skipped in chapter 22 today with respect to King Josiah and his magnificent building campaign. The name of the podcast is called Getting on the Same Page. And it's astounding that in terms of leadership and organizational health, King Josiah is really a top-notch leader. Everyone is entrusted and empowered and accountable to the work of building the house of the Lord. The project is going marvelously from top to bottom, everyone involved in doing their part. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our churches operated like this? But then the book of the law is discovered, and it's enough to halt this magnificent building campaign. You know, we too hear of modern stories of building projects that are halted when ancient artifacts are discovered, but nothing that would make us rend our clothes in repentance and beg for God's mercy. And I suppose this might be heaping coals upon our heads, but it is the same book of the law that we can access today. Most of us have it on our own shelves. I would say the difference is we don't have the same kind of penitent response exemplified by King Josiah. Clearly, this is why he is so revered as the righteous king, and not I, not you, not anyone else. Perhaps this is the reason we don't know his story so well. We would rather try to relate to those who might be more on our level, so to speak, recalling the sins and failures of King Saul, King David, and Solomon, so that our own shortcomings just don't look so bad. Well, Holly, they're cleaning, rebuilding, refurbishing, beautifying their temple. That's a word you often hear in any capital campaign programs for churches. I just received one, for example. Okay, They want to beautify and make it more beautiful. And they come upon this lost book of the law, Deuteronomy. It's Moses' last words, if you will, unwarnings, blessings, and curses, and the conditions upon which they are being brought from Egypt and given the land that was not theirs, which now people like to call the promised land. So, It should shock us when we read, and you said in the introduction, as if the book of the law did no longer exist. No one knew about it. And it says it's the heart and soul. Let me read something from Moses' mouth in Deuteronomy at the very end before God takes him away and removes him. He warns the children of Israel, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. 
By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that is the introduction to everything that has happened that we've been podcasting about over the last few weeks. They are the source of life. And if you observe them, you will live long in the land. So the shocking is, is that not only did they not have any awareness that this book of the law existed, but it says that they haven't even celebrated the Passover. And this relates to the, the Moses story. In other words, they have their big, beautiful building. And you've made mention, we have our big, beautiful buildings. So, you know, Orthodox churches have this beauty. Let's not deny it. But my point is, the soul for which the building is constructed for is the commandments of God, the law of God, the book of Deuteronomy for the Israelites here. And they have no conscious awareness of, which means, what are they doing? <laughs> what are the priests doing? They know nothing. They know nothing. And one of the ironies of the story is Josiah, after he hears this and says, okay, an expletive would be in order here, but we will not say the expletive, just, oh my, see? Oh my, because we are in trouble. We have not done what we have been commanded. Our parents, our grandparents, all over. No one has done. And now there is going to be judgment. And he senses judgment. We talk about the shortness of Josiah. Yes, he gets the short straw. He leads. He leads the people. He leads them into a repentance that is never heard or seen again. And it describes it in detail. It describes the removal of, of all the altars and all the idols and the various other gods that were being worshipped hither and thither and by everyone. In other words, their idolatry that came with Solomon. And then it just continued in a way that even makes David and Saul look rosy. This complete and utter abandonment of that which formed them and made them who they are. We as Christians, okay, we're finishing the period of Great Land, about ready to start Holy Week. What is supposed to form us and make us who we are? You know, I don't want to say identity because that's an overused word. St. Paul says, oh foolish Galatians, how much longer do I have to labor until Christ is formed in you? Okay, so we're supposed to be laboring and reflecting and repenting and acknowledging, confessing our sins. But where is the focus? And so you and I have been talking a long time about the commandments of God, the obedience of God. And we have only Josiah, who represents the end of the story, which will be the end of Kings and the despair. Second Kings 25 is the end of it, and it has the judgment has come. So my point is, even as Josiah leads them in repentance, what is his reward? If you know the story of Hezekiah, you know that Hezekiah also repents. And God stays his hand and decides not to destroy Jerusalem and Judah yet. Israel, the 10 tribes, they're already gone. They've already had their chance and they're gone. Never to be heard of again, by the way, functionally in the scripture. So Josiah's only, if you will, consolation, Josiah's only consolation is that he will not witness the bitter end himself. Now, the irony, of course, Holly, is that his end is bitter. He's a young man, right, in his late 30s, and he dies in battle. The kings never die in battle. He dies in battle. That's his end. So he doesn't witness what is coming, but he's told. So I want to talk more about the end here, but let's go ahead and look at the last couple of verses I've asked you to read. 
Yeah, so in the next chapter, 23, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off the city which I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. We've talked about the despair of God. We've talked about the depressing reality of the human story as written in the scripture. And so I want our hearers to understand it. And this, they can personalize it in their own life as their own story, but as being contained within the larger biblical story, that there comes a time when repentance is no longer on the table. This is a message I want to hear at the end of Lent. There comes a time when repentance is no longer an option. Why? Because it's the time of judgment. We can talk about the great and last day of of the Lord and standing before him and so on and so forth, okay? But we have to imagine it. We need to sober up. There is a time when judgment is now at hand. Think of uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's call, right? Read the first 10 verses of Isaiah chapter 6. He makes this point that he is no longer allowing repentance. He is dumbing their ears so they can't hear and see, making them blind because now it is time for judgment. And that's the God-awful task that Isaiah is asked to do. So I want people just to sober up here when it comes to this idea that of chosenness. I will cast off this city which I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. There is no guarantees. We can say this all the time till we're blue in the face, but do we believe it? Okay, We are chosen until we are not. We are not God's special people, given some sort of grace that no one else gets. It simply is related to reading the book of Deuteronomy, reading the conditions and what God engages us as his people, whether we're Israelites or whether we're Jews now, Muslims, Christians, or whatever. Everybody has their book and the terms in which. And so I think it's time as we uh, approach the Holy Week to not imagine not to beat our breast, but to see ourselves as the failing ones, the ones who are causing despair to God. It's not a very hopeful message. It's not. And I want us to feel the despair, not our own despair, because our despair is is a lack of faith, ultimately, about ourselves, our failures, and we begin to have a pity party. No, the despair of God over his creation. As we move, and we'll have Holy Week next week, and we will do another podcast on the crucifixion, and we'll end the story of the kings, and we'll end the human story, and start with a new story, which is Christ is risen. But we're not there yet, and don't imagine. So I want us to place ourselves as the unfaithful ones, the ones who have completely forgotten that even God's commandments exist, And we're doing our own thing, beating our own drum, building our own palaces, whatever it is, people can finish their own plot line of surviving, materialistic, engorging themselves. To assume that we have begun to repent is also 
a little bit troublesome. We always need to place ourselves in the ones who are standing over and against God as a precaution and as a safety. We're not the prodigal son. We're the son who's there. We're not the publican. We're the Pharisee. Because we always, our church even wants us to identify with the good guys. We want to be the hero of our own stories, don't we? Exactly. If I want to get marketing right, I've got to make sure that people feel like they're the heroes of their own stories. <laughs> yes, you do. Otherwise, it doesn't sell. Yeah. The Bible is not selling anything other than God's commandments or else, judgment. So as we reflect a little bit on Josiah and the irony that he is the best king ever, and he's the one that singularly gets slaughtered in battle as a grace so he doesn't see the exile. So I want to leave at least one little, little teeny tiny bit of hope, and that is in Second Kings chapter 25, to see the end of the story, because we didn't give the end of the story, really. Okay, the next king, you know, the son of Josiah comes and whatnot. It's a disaster. And then another king. And then the judgment comes. The Babylonians, the instrument of God, conquer Jerusalem. And Judah refuses to accept its punishment. So they rebel again. And that's when Jerusalem gets destroyed and the temple gets ripped apart. And the king finally is taken into exile, where he's in prison. Jehoiachin is his name. And in his imprisonment, after he's released, this is the hope. This is the hope for the future. He is now under the care of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's given a stipend. He eats at the king's table every day. But he's not a king of anything. But he's under the hospitality of the one who God brought to conquer and to bring judgment. But he's still there. So that's the image of hope. He's still there. He's no longer in prison, but he's in exile. And the point was they had to accept the punishment. And see it not as the battle of kings over larger, smaller empires, but simply as God bringing them back to their knees. Why? Because they have to start again. And that ends in the story of kings, because there are no other kings after that. Okay? There is no other. It's just exile, and the biblical story will continue. Matthew chapter 1. That's where it continues. You were talking about the despair of God, and I was wondering, too, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. I will cast off the city which I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So the despair is so great that he's canceling even himself, if we imagine that his existence is connected at all to Jerusalem and Judah. See, when the chosen ones become a blasphemy, there is no choice. There is no choice. There's no options, if you will. Jerusalem has to be eliminated because it's become an idol. Once it becomes an idol, it can no longer be functional. And it's not about the building. It's not about the city. It's not about the people. It's about the commandments. And until we see that, we're going to continue to beautify churches and think that God dwells there and we have him nicely captured and contained till he has to break out and be free again. Read Ezekiel to understand what we mean by that, or he has to be free because he's been imprisoned by his people. And that doesn't work. It all has to go and it's gone. Thank you, Father Timothy. Time to sober up as we enter into Holy Week, even imagining that there comes a time where repentance is no longer an option, that judgment is at hand. 
maybe have a little bit of hope that you described, even if we have to sit at another's table. Go to exile. <laughs> yeah, go into exile and, and be taken care of by our enemy. Exactly. Isn't that a profound point? The one who conquered us is now the one who is keeping us alive and sustaining us for hopefully a time in the future. <laughs>